From KIOS in Omaha, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I'm talking with Eileen Wirth, author of the new book, The Women Who Built Omaha, A Bold and Remarkable History. My image was of a book that was missing half the chapters. I wasn't really trying to refute anything that men have done. I was simply saying in my own little way, as Abigail Adams said, remember the ladies. I simply wanted to write the half of our city chapters that have not appeared to any great extent in local history. Worth discusses the way reframing history to include previously excluded voices and stories impacts our culture and what contributions women made in the formation of Omaha as we know it. Stay tuned for the conversation after this break. Riverside Chats relies on your listener support and the best way to ensure continued coverage of arts, ideas, politics, all the local stuff that you listen to this show for is by making a sustaining monthly donation of $1, $5, or whatever you can afford. What what do do you think this show is worth? We got over 100 episodes in our backlog. We're aiming to make a lot more. We want to keep the show at the quality that you expect and, in fact, to improve it to go beyond what you expect. So please consider becoming a supporter by clicking on the link in the show notes for this episode. Welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Today I'm talking with Eileen Wirth, Professor Emeritus of Journalism at Creighton University and Senior Writer for Legacy Preservation in Omaha. Wirth is the author of several books, including From Society to Front Page, Nebraska Women in Journalism, and A History Lover's Guide to Omaha. Her latest book is The Women Who Built Omaha, A Bold and Remarkable History, which adds to our city's story as something that is not exclusively a man's town, a man's history. She explores the women who played major roles in education, health, culture, social services, and other fields since the city's founding in 1854. Today, Worth and I discuss the women who built Omaha, as well as what it means to add to history, to add that second half to history that she felt was missing, and how cultural attitudes are impacted by both the absence and presence of women in our shared narratives. Here is our conversation. In the preface to The Women Who Built Omaha, you write that while Omaha's men were building railroads and banks, its women were building schools and hospitals. They were endowing universities, building art museums, fighting for the right to vote, running houses of ill repute, and bootlegging. Yet women in women's groups can constitute only about 10% of the names in the indexes of two major local histories written about a century apart. A reader would never know that women founded or transformed Creighton University, Jaws Art Museum, Mutual of Omaha, the Henry Dorley Zoo, and so much more. So I think it's maybe worth starting with just a broader question of why is it that history, not just Omaha history, but why does history overlook women? I think it's not exactly intentional. A lot of it has to do with the fact that women made their contributions in fields that traditional history has overlooked, which is to say, and by social history, I do not mean going to tea or dinner. I mean the uh, portion of life where people live. Traditional history focuses on business, wars, and government. And those have not, by and large, been fields, particularly the military, that women have dominated. The other thing is, a lot of the women who made these really significant contributions did not do so under for gainful employment. Uh, Some of them were wealthy widows who inherited their husband's fortune and then used it for things that had much more lasting impact on the community, like the museum and Creighton, certainly. Okay, some of this has to do with my old field um, of journalism. If you look at the newspapers in the era that I write about in this book, which is essentially the 1850s up through uh, mostly the early 70s, the definition of news paralleled the definition of history, or maybe I should say the definition of history paralleled the definition of news. And women were excluded from the so-called, you know, the, the news sections of newspapers. So you kind of had this division into male sectors, female sectors, and the male sectors dominated both the news industry, and then the historical accounts of times. That has an impact, though, in our understanding of history, women's place in culture, society, right? So, like, how does that 
uh, ultimately affect the way that women were perceived or what maybe they could do, right? Because there's got to be a lot of intersection there. There is a lot of intersection. And I, it's one of those chicken and an egg things. Were women cast in these roles and portrayed this way because that's how society viewed them. You've got to remember that suffrage is pretty darn recent. It's about 100 years old. Women before suffrage had almost no rights. Um, It's kind of shocking to me. I'm 75, not ashamed to admit it. But when I started my career at the Omaha World Herald in 1969, sex discrimination was technically illegal, but it was pervasive. And until a year or two before that, it was totally legal. Women, if you look at at the legal position of women, they had almost no rights. Um, They they didn't control property. They couldn't vote. Uh, One reason, they they often, a husband could even control their children. You go on and on. If you look at the legal position of women, there were no laws protecting them against gender discrimination in uh, employment, education. I just finished a book about Title IX, and it goes back to it's just kind of incredible how little power women had. And one of the interesting things to me about what I found in researching this book was power is usually related to control of wealth. And the women in this book who had a lot of impact, in many cases, controlled wealth. Well, and they're all sort of like rebelling then against this idea then. I think so when we talk about the way that stories are told, the way our historical narratives are formed, because women were thought of as not having access to power to wealth, there's almost this sense that people think, well, women couldn't have had that much of an impact on history then because there just wasn't access to the power to do so. Yeah, you know, I would like to say they even thought about it that much. Okay, when I started at the Omaha World Herald Newsroom in the summer of 1969, I was one of the first three or four women city reporters. And we had the women's news section, and the guys looked down their noses at it. They felt like those, what I now realize were brilliantly talented journalists, were a lesser species. They made fun of them. And those of us who had broken into city news uh, as part of the baby boom wave, we, were, we considered ourselves superior because of what we were allowed to cover. Totally unfair, I would add. But it was simply that people didn't even, they weren't even concerned exactly about women versus men. There was just this blind spot when it came to what women did. I mean, they never even thought about the kind of question you just raised. It was just not even on their radar. And one of the things that we early baby boom women in journalism did was we got subjects on the radar as subjects to be considered seriously financial discrimination against women. Nobody in that era thought child care was even an issue. Can you believe that? Child care was not... I can remember a dear male friend of mine in TV telling me when he did a series with a woman reporter, he was a photographer, on child care, he found it absolutely fascinating. All kinds of things that we now consider very important it wasn't that people were exactly against him. It just never occurred to them as being something important. And I think that is reflected in the histories that I consulted. It's, it's, I don't know. It's sometimes hard for me to wrap my mind around that. I mean, how, how does it happen that women are treated like this subspecies? How are, is the humanity not seen or noticed to even be ignored as opposed to just not noticed at all? Well, we talk a lot about the Constitution, Remember, the Constitution did not mention women. Women were not 
Abigail Adams wrote a letter, you know, to her husband, remember the ladies. Well, they didn't remember the ladies. Um, the suffrage movement took, it started in Seneca Falls in 1848, and it took 75 years to get the vote. Women, historically, if you go back to Europe, I mean, we've been hearing a lot from that leaked decision, going back to the 13th century, with women being witches. I mean, you go on and on. Women were very little more than property. And the only control they ever had was if they inherited money. So I uh, I asked Courtney yesterday when I was doing prep for this. Uh, my question was, do you think – I said to Courtney, do you think Eileen has seen the movie Anchorman? Oh, yes. <laughs> I used to actually encourage my students to see it. What's your take on it? Um, it's obviously somewhat exaggerated, but for someone of my age, not that much exaggerated. I mean, I have known my share of Ron Burgundy's. Well, I think that one of the genius things about that movie is everybody understands this Ron Burgundy character, right? Everybody can kind of see we've all met somebody or know people in power who have a lot of those same insecurities. And uh, one of the things that's interesting to me in that movie is the whole conflict of it is really just these men's insecurity, right? It's it's not like a real villain in the movie. Veronica Corningstone is this female uh, news anchor that they just – the concept is like they say it's an anchor man, not anchor lady and those things like that, right? It just blows their minds. Yeah, I'm not even totally sure. I think insecurity followed the fact that people don't like to change. I mean, it was like – We've always done it this way. And in a lot of the the fields, and newsrooms would be a good example, there was kind of a boys' club atmosphere, and there was a real fear that women coming into a newsroom was going to change that boys' club locker room, in addition to the insecurity that you're talking about. And that wasn't true of all men. I mean, and it was actually true from my experience in being a, one of the first women in a newsroom. That was actually true probably of a minority of men. They, it was just something new, and it took them a while to get used to it. And it wasn't, in many cases, a hostile thing. Women had to show they were there for the right reasons, that they just wanted to be good colleagues. They knew what they were doing. They wanted to be good journalists. And some of them were became admired members of, if, forgive me, the boys' club. I mean, <laughs> they could use the same kind of language. If you were horrified by a few F-bombs, you weren't going to last very long. You had to understand the sense of humor. You could still object. But the fact is, most of us who went through that era realized we weren't dealing with bad people. We weren't even necessarily dealing with insecure people. We were dealing with people who had to adjust to a change. And that is challenging. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Eileen Wirth, author of the new book, The Women Who Built Omaha, A Bold and Remarkable History. Join the conversation on social media or call in with what issue is on your mind in a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089, and we may play it on an upcoming show. Well, you had to adjust to be in that world, right? You had to adjust to the boys' club. Yeah. And so it's just kind of, no, it's just like, is it the complacency uh, that, that, I don't know, just discomfort for men at the time was more of the issue than kind of an intellectualized insecurity or even supremacy? Yeah. Yeah, essentially. And when you say we had to adjust, our assumption was we had to try to fit in. It was not as if we morating females were going to impose this model on them. We had to try to come in to an existing culture and adapt ourselves to it because it was the it was the culture and if we wanted to be gainfully employed in our field we had to adapt to it but we also had to help that culture become more inclusive and 
open to our perspectives. And for most of us, at least, in, I should say for me, but I think I speak for others in that group of women, we wanted the men to look at the world through a broader lens. Now, I think one of the major points that I would like to make in this book is how important it is for society to welcome a diversity of people and how much better we are off when we do welcome people of many kinds, many perspectives, hopefully working together. I look at what Omaha would be like if the women groundbreakers whose stories I tell, and these are stories. This is not in any way, shape, or form a preachy book. I think you would agree with that. These are stories. But I think of what kind of a city Omaha would be if Mary Lucretia Creighton and Sarah Emily, her sister, and John Creighton, Ed Creighton died. It was Mary Lucretia's will that really established Creighton. But if, if, what would Omaha be like if we hadn't created Creighton University, where I lived for, or worked for 25 years? What would we be like if my favorite woman in the book, Rachel Gallagher, whose lifelong crusade was the parks, had not felt so strongly about protecting the parks from interstate construction that she flew back to Washington and got Eisenhower Secretary of the Interior to say no one could touch a park without her permission. This is, this is real power because she was rich and because she was fearless, but it preserved Riverview Park as the site of today's zoo. What would Omaha be like? What would Omaha be like if a Russian immigrant who came over not speaking English, not being able to read, had not started a little furniture store downtown that grew into the nation's largest furniture store. You go on and on and on, and you realize that was the inspiration for this book. When women, I don't want to say aloud, that sounds too patronizing. When women made major contributions to the city, everyone benefited. And that's the big point I want to make in this book. Well, and so as far as comfort with narratives and comfort with who gets to be the center of them, I do want to ask as well where there's this kind of idea that whenever we do try to change the focus or broaden the horizons of the narrative of the country, there often is contribution. So like, for example, there's the 1619 Project, which defined itself as aiming to reframe the country's history by placing the consequences of slavery and the contributions of black Americans at the center of the United States national narrative. And a lot of people found this as, I don't know if it's like a threat to the concept of America as they want it to be understood, or if it is just, again, sort of this discomfort with change, and we don't like that. I don't know how ideological all of that is. But, I mean, you're here sort of recontextualizing Omaha's history uh, in the sense that we want to make it more women-focused or understand what that means. Is there a backlash to your sort of attempt to refocus history, recontextualize it? I don't think, I certainly haven't experienced that in the month and a half this book has been out. What I have found is enthusiasm for people, women especially, but women and men being excited to finally shine a spotlight on the contributions that women make. Now, there's a significant difference between the 1619 Project and this. I, and I am a supporter of the 1619 Project, but I'm not trying to recontextualize anything. I am adding to the text. When I was writing this book, the three and a half years it took me to research it and write it, my image was of a book that was missing half the chapters. And I wasn't really trying to refute anything or very little that men have done. I was simply saying in my own little way, as Abigail Adams said, remember the ladies. I simply wanted to write the half of our city chapters that have not appeared to any great extent in local history. 
And yeah, there's quite a bit in there about how women were discriminated against, certainly in the suffrage chapter, certainly in the civil rights chapter. But my overriding desire was to make sure that the extremely important contributions Omaha women have made to the city are recognized. Well, and so maybe we could get a little bit of a sense of that arc and what it looks like. I know you start at the very beginning as Omaha is being founded. What was it like for the very first women in what would become Omaha? Oh, my gosh. I think my line in the book, which I still like, is Omaha was a terrible place to live. (laughs) It was just awful. I mean, it was a muddy village on the banks of the Missouri River. It was like 25 years before we even got a bathtub. You had no sewers. You had... The weather, of course, was as good as it is now. (laughs) So you had sinkholes when it was muddy, dust storms. You had animals all over. It stunk to high heaven. Um, The housing was, to put it mildly, primitive. And so when upper-class couples came out to settle the area— They basically, the women, if they were from genteel homes back east, they were pretty horrified, and they had to be really tough in order to make it. And, of course, these were the upper-class people. We are not even talking about the immigrants and, you know. and, and, And I think it's very important for us also to put this in the context of the expulsion of the Native Americans. I don't want that overlooked. And I have what I think is an important chapter about our Native American heritage. Yeah, so how did you parse out what to focus on as far as that goes? Was there a a moment where you thought that it should be more focused on the Native American element? Like when exactly Omaha becomes Omaha is maybe a question that involves the Native American history as well. Well, it's actually, from a historical standpoint, I'm dealing mostly just with facts. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, The western side of the Missouri River was closed to European-American settlement until the signing of the treaties, which expelled the Native American tribes who I think included, and I may leave one out, but I think it was the Omahas, the Poncas, the Missouras, and the Potawatomi. I may be wrong on the Potawatomis. But anyway, white from Council Bluffs, Council Bluffs was settled a lot earlier, and Omaha was founded by people who came over from Council Bluffs on the first day. Actually, that was before it was quite legal. I'm not sure. But it was on July 4th, 1854, a group of people from Council Bluffs came over and established Omaha. And all of this is a matter of basically when the federal government expelled the Indians. Yeah. And when women start to be part of the story or when they weren't part and you're sort of adding that element, I noticed in one of the early chapters you talk about some of the early things that women were responsible for in these communities was amenities like churches, schools, stores, elements of society that are definitely valued, but usually less dramatized when we tell narrative stories. Right. So, I mean, I guess, why, why is it, is it just because men are the ones often fighting battles? Is that why so much of our history seems to be rooted around the wars and less around the building of the institutions in a society? I think that's a part of it, but not all of it. Some of it is historians and journalists like drama. It's a lot more dramatic to write about Gettysburg, the Battle of Gettysburg with the thousands of dead, than it is to write about a woman in Frontier Omaha starting a school in the temporary territorial capital. The kinds of things women did were not nearly as dramatic. And, of course, you had the male focus on. And I can remember studying history back in when I was in high school, when dinosaurs walked the earth. Um, you know, it. a lot of the stuff that women did was just not very dramatic, whereas wars are always dramatic, always have been. And if you look at the histories, even political history is downplayed compared with war. People who are not historical experts probably don't remember 
nearly as well the way that Franklin Roosevelt transformed the nation economically in the New Deal as the fact that he was the president during World War II. I mean, we are still reenacting D-Day. And, and, I mean, look at the History Channel. I mean, people have joked about it being the Hitler Channel. Yeah, now it's just aliens. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, it, it's war has always gotten a disproportionate percentage. Well, I mean, why is it then that even in, I think almost especially in popular history, that it's not historians who are consuming, it's almost always focused on destruction rather than construction? Why do, why, why do you think that is? Gosh, I wish I knew. Then we could change it. <laughs> well, you are. I mean, in some ways, your book is kind of an antidote to that, right? Well, I hope so. I hope it makes people think about what things are important. Like I said, my image in writing this book was that our city history was a book with half the chapters left out. And I hope people go back and think for a moment, what would a city be like without the schools, without the hospitals, without the human services? And it's not that these have been exclusively women, but certainly those have been fields where a disproportionate percentage of women made their contribution. Yeah, and so some of those early ones then, uh, late in the 19th century, you've got two, two Omaha institutions founded by women, Creighton University and Duchenne. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about how those came to be? Well, yeah, Creighton, which I'm especially interested in, uh, the Creightons, John and Edward Creighton, were brothers who built the Transcontinental Telegraph, and they moved out here from Ohio. And they became fabulously wealthy in the Transcontinental Telegraph. They were involved in banking. They were involved in livestock. Uh, John Creighton got involved in silver mining. They were Omaha's wealthiest and most prominent individuals by far. They married two sisters. Um, They married uh, Ed Creighton's wife was Mary Lucretia, and John Creighton's wife was... Mary Lucretia's sister, Sarah Emily. And they were Irish immigrants. They didn't have much education. They came out here to this frontier town, and they were going to build it into something great. Well, Ed Creighton had a stroke at his desk when he was only in his mid-50s. And the account most commonly told is that he had told Mary Lucretia he wanted to start a university. Now, I talked to Mary Maxwell, one of the descendants who's very well known in Omaha, and she said, eh, he might have mentioned it. But in reality, both Creighton families, by the way, uh, Mary, neither family had surviving children, so that leaves money to be used for something else if you don't have heirs. Anyway, um, but they were both interested in education. The women were very interested in education, and their husbands felt their lack of education. And peers back east in, like, the telegraph industry, the Cornells, for example, were founding universities. So it was kind of a thing that wealthy people were doing in this period, which was the 1870s. There was an awful lot of money, and it seemed like a good thing to do, and other peers were doing it. And since they had no children, Mary Lucretia, who was in very poor health, wrote the, the endowment for Creighton into her will. She died a year later. So that resulted in the founding. Suddenly they had the money to start a university, But it was in the middle of the frontier. It was going to be a Catholic university. They were very devout Catholics. Their first job was to try to find a religious order. It was for men. She specified that. Um, That would take them. The Dominicans with whom they had ties did not want to. They had to go all the way to Rome to persuade the Jesuits to come out. Now, I, as a person who taught at Creighton for 25 years and am very fond of the Jesuits, I have thought— The Jesuit coming to Omaha has made a huge impact on this city. It's by far the largest and most important Catholic religious order. And and this a lot of the things about today's Creighton 
uh, and the excellence and so forth have a lot to do with, I'm going to say, our Jesuit identity because I'm a professor emeritus. But anyway, so they persuaded the Jesuits to come, and Sarah Emily and John Creighton and the Bishop of Omaha really laid the groundwork for the university, and then they got the Jesuits to come, and the Jesuits took it over and ran it. But Sarah Emily was a force of nature. Mary Maxwell told me, she said, Mary Lucretia was the pretty one. And she said a lot more descendants are named Mary or Lucretia than Sarah or Emily. Sarah Emily was the one who got stuff done. She was the one who basically told the Jesuits they were going to build the very large St. John's Church when the university had like two buildings. It was on a hill. You can look at the pictures. Sarah Emily and John Creighton decided it was going to be a science-oriented university, and they gave money for the first chemistry building. Creighton is still health science-oriented. Sarah Emily was a very powerful woman. Uh, Unfortunately, she also died very young, and John Creighton lived many, many years. The There was a French religious order called the Religious of the Sacred Heart who had strong ties with the Jesuits. And they ran schools for elite Catholic young women. Um, They had these strong ties with the Jesuits because their founder in France, her, her blood brother, was a Jesuit. And there were just these strong ties. And the religious of the Sacred Heart tended to establish schools in cities where the Jesuits were located. They had similar educational philosophies, and they both tended to serve the cream of the Catholic population. So after Omaha managed to get the Jesuits to come for Creighton, they then, one of the things they wanted to do was to get the Sacred Hearts to come in and establish a school for girls, which is Duchenne Academy. And the two are like a mile apart or very close, as we know. And um, they weren't exactly companions because Duchenne, for many years, was only a high school, a boarding school, I might add. And later it became Duchenne College, and which was founded out of Creighton. But the two, there's this historic link between the two sponsoring religious orders. And you had, it was like, okay, Creighton served the boys, and Duchenne served the girls, at least through high school. I'm talking with Eileen Wirth, author of the new book, The Women Who Built Omaha, A Bold and Remarkable History. Let us know what you think. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Stay tuned for the rest of the conversation after this break. We have an exciting announcement here at Riverside Chats, which is that we will be doing a live recording of an upcoming episode of this show at Benston Theater on September 24th, where you can see me on stage in conversation with the man himself from Mannheim Steamroller, Chip Davis. We'll be talking about his subversive approach to the music industry, the creation of Mannheim Steamroller, and how he's helped build spaces like Benson Theater for Omaha culture to flourish. Following the conversation, there will be an opportunity for audience participation and questions. I don't know, maybe we will, like Mr. Chip Davis himself, sing some Christmas songs, but make them really loud and intense. I don't know what's going to happen. It has to happen live, and hopefully you'll be there with us. Check for tickets at BensonTheater.org. An evening with Chip Davis, our first live recorded Riverside Chats since the show premiered on public radio. See you September 24th. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Make sure to check out the backlog of Riverside Chats episodes wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe on your favorite app today, and please leave us a review while you're there. I'm talking with Eileen Wirth, author of the new book, The Women Who Built Omaha, A Bold and Remarkable History. We're talking about who these women were and what it means to add to history, to add a second half that maybe hasn't been there before, and what that means for cultural attitudes, how those are impacted by both the absence and presence of women in our shared narratives. Here is the rest of our conversation. We talked about uh, earlier in our conversation that sometimes the narratives of progress that we have in our lives today can obscure the proximity we have to a lot of the fights and progressive movements that were going on alongside the social movements and social institutions that were being established. So like the right for suffrage, like you said, 
100 years ago, a lot more that was also going on. So it's not like women were purely doing things like stores and education either. There were a lot who were involved in the political fights, right, who were trying to move legislation legislation, uh, to achieve certain reforms, whether it's voting or other ones. So, I mean, who were some of the early Gilded Age feminists that uh, you want to talk about and tell us about? Well, one of the people I love, and I start the suffragette chaplet, suffragist chapter with her is Amelia Bloomer. Everybody's heard of Bloomers, you know, the panel in costume. Um, But she ended her life in Council Bluffs, and Bloomer School over in the Bluffs is named after her. She was one of the first women to speak to a legislature when word got around just to give you a little background on her, she her home was in Seneca Falls, and her neighbor in Seneca Falls was Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who was Susan B. Anthony is one of the two founding mothers of the suffragist movement. She went to the Seneca Falls Convention with her husband, Derek, because her next-door neighbor said, hey, we're having this meeting. Come join me now. And then she ran. She had gotten in. She got into suffrage like many women did, via the temperance movement. And I'll explain that in a minute. But anyway, Derek, her husband, was a great big believer in westward expansion. So while she's at a temperance conference in New York, he decides to take a trip to the frontier, comes out to Council Bluffs, buys land and builds a house and said, oh, by the way, honey, we're going to Council Bluffs, Iowa. And so she comes out here and... Word got around that she was a good lecturer. I don't imagine they had a lot of diversions in early Omaha. So the territorial legislature invited her to give a speech on suffrage, and I dug out the coverage in the very early newspapers. She came very close to persuading the territorial legislature to grant women the vote. We could have been the first state, but of course the session expired and then We didn't end up getting the vote until 1919. But she was a fascinating woman, and she lectured on suffrage all over the country. Um, But her story of how she got into suffrage via temperance tells a lot also about why it took Nebraska so long to approve suffrage. Okay, a lot of women got involved in temperance because— Their husbands would drink up the paycheck, come home, alcoholism, domestic violence. One of the problems was women had so few rights when it came to divorce. If a woman divorced her husband because of alcoholism and domestic violence, she was likely to lose her children as well. So women who got into temperance because of their concerns about domestic violence. Many of them made the leap to the suffrage movement because they realized that until they got power to vote and to have a say-so in the legislature, they were never going to achieve their temperance aims. Now, that connection between suffrage and temperance is one of the reasons why men tended to be very reluctant to support temperance, particularly, or excuse me, suffrage, especially in a city like Omaha, which by the time we're talking about towards the end of the 1800s, Omaha had become a railroad town, a packing house town, pretty tough blue collar city. And Immigrants pouring in from European countries, uh, Germans, Irish, Poles, etc., from countries where drinking alcohol was just a given part of the culture. And going to a bar, Omaha had bars on every corner. And the men who had to vote to give women the vote didn't want to give up the ability to go to the tavern and the bar. So there was a huge reluctance by men to vote for women's suffrage because they felt if they did, they were voting for what amounted to prohibition. So again, then, it's not necessarily an issue of wanting to extend supremacy so much as there's a change that seemed like it would be uncomfortable or annoying. 
And that was kind of uh, part of what was motivating people? Well, yeah, that was a big part of what was motivating. And then you also had the fears by men and some women. There was an anti-suffrage movement in Nebraska and many other states where it was like God has ordained that men have the political sphere and women do not. Some working women, for reasons which escape me, felt they would suffer in the workplace if women got the vote. Now, the logic of that, I, I don't even ask me. I cannot understand it. I, don't, I couldn't explain it. But the arguments I was reading against giving women the vote were a great deal like those I covered when I covered the battle for the Equal Rights Amendment back in the 1970s. And if you look at a lot of the discussion going on now, you know, of what some people call toxic masculinity and that God has ordained that women have their own sphere. And that doesn't mean in their view that it's lesser. Some of us would say, yes, it does mean it's lesser. (laughs) But I mean, I guess if you feel that way, some people, some women, largely protected upper class women. And this really, I mean, I'm sitting there and thinking, oh my gosh, this is like the ERA things. If women were given the vote, then men might not have the obligation to support them. And for upper-class women, what would happen if they had to go into the workplace? The arguments have not really changed. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Eileen Wirth, author of the new book, The Women Who Built Omaha, A Bold and Remarkable History. Join the conversation on social media or call in with what issue is on your mind in a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089. And we may play it on an upcoming show. Does it make you feel pessimistic then? I mean, we have this kind of narrative of progress. People like to say that the what the arc is moving toward justice. But when the the sort of like maybe there are legislative achievements here and there, but if the mentalities and the arguments themselves aren't changing, are people's overall views of the genders of who has what rights are those actually shifting? I mean, like, do do you see it as uh, like? positive permanent change that's happening incrementally? I see it as incremental change. I would like to say much of it or most of it is positive. Permanent? Um, I remember my daughter called me distraught after the 1916, or excuse me, 2016 election. And she said, Mom, does this mean we're going back to what it was like when you were young? And I said, I certainly hope not. Um, There are many factors that dictate change. And when it comes to women and the workplace, some of it is sheer economics. When I was starting my career, it was pretty typical for middle to upper class women to be working only in the home. And anybody who's ever raised kids know that is about as hard a work as there is. So then we had the shift where it became almost impossible for a family to live on one income. And it went from guys my age being say, well, how would you feel if your wife, quote, wanted to work, to are you kidding me? (laughs) How long of a maternity leave do you have to have? Um, families had to have two incomes. And our economy became very, very dependent upon women, as we found during the pandemic. So I think you've got to realize that there have been a lot of changes that were not only policy changes. They are economic changes. So no, we are not going to go back to my youth ever. Because, frankly, this country can't afford it, particularly when you realize that the percentage of students getting degrees are disproportionately women. Part of my research for this book was to go back and look at old yearbooks or old pictures of law classes, medical classes. Very, very few women now probably about half or more of the people in those two professions going in are women. 
uh, the other day I gave a talk to retired doctors on this book and talked mostly about the healthcare segment. And afterwards, I was signing books for them, and amazing numbers of the men, and there were quite a few women in this group, but they came up to me and said, would you sign one for my daughter? She's a radiologist. Or my daughter has a Ph.D. and she's teaching math at the college level. They were so proud of their daughters. That kind of progress is very difficult to undo. When you talk a lot about how in the 1970s there was baby boomer women entering the workforce in record numbers. They complained of job discrimination and glass ceilings, but they grew up expecting equal opportunities. And a lot of them did become doctors, lawyers, corporate managers, police officers, firefighters, reporters. So, I mean, there is a shift in public consciousness of where maybe in the 1800s a lot of this felt like immoral or unnatural, right? And we've kind of dropped some of that mentality. Is it is the secularization of culture at play here as well? Well, a couple of things, and it's actually way more complicated. But one of the big things that caused uh, this rather large change in women in the Gilded Age, which was basically the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, was the passage of the Morrill Act, which set up the land-grant universities. Prior to this time, there had been very little higher education for women, and the colleges and schools for men were almost all exclusive private schools. Okay, so Congress passes the bill the Morrill Act that established coeducational land-grant universities, and they had to be co-ed. So all of a sudden, in every state in the union, you have affordable co-ed institutions, and you had the growth of high schools, and there were more women in the high schools than men because Men could leave high school before graduation and get a good-paying job in blue-collar occupations. Women tended to stay longer because if they stayed another year or two, they could go – they could – with a high school degree, they could teach elementary school. So you had a disproportionate percentage of the high school kids were women, and then suddenly colleges are open to them, and then that opens all kinds of opportunities – even if they were mostly gender restricted. You had, you know, a, a big influx of women into teaching, into nursing. A few became doctors and a few other fields. I mean, it was not perfect, but it was better. Now, the women of my age came, we, we were in high school when, or, young, or grade school, during the Civil Rights Movement. And a lot of the founders of the women's movement cut their teeth in the civil rights movement. And suddenly, the civil rights movement, in which, I, as I document in my book, many women were active and have never gotten the credit they deserve for their activism. But women learned they could demonstrate, they could protest, there is strength in numbers. Uh, I wrote a book earlier about Nebraska women in journalism and said, what caused this change? And a sociologist at Iowa State told me, some of it is sheer force of numbers. It's very difficult for one woman to break through. And the women I write about were one or two or three. But when my generation came of age, there was a whole cohort of us. And there is strength in numbers. Uh, there may not have been a whole lot of us at, say, any one news operation, but there were a fair number of us, if you put us all together from the various news operations, and we knew each other, and we could collaborate, and we could say, this is what I'm concerned about. Yeah, so am I. And Pretty soon, because you're dealing for the most part not with people who are evil, but with people who are unaware, we made it our business to make them aware and to make changes. And there were enough of us doing this in enough settings that you could make grassroots change. So do you think awareness then is in a good place? Are historians and journalists better at including women today than they used to be? Oh, absolutely. Because if nothing else, and I'm not saying this is 
it's not that journalists and historians concerned about women are only women. But you do have the field open to women. Most fields are open to women. Um, I've just finished reading a couple of books about the wonderful Cokie Roberts of NPR, one of NPR's founding mothers. When she started at NPR, there were just a tiny handful. She couldn't get hired by a broadcast news station despite her incredible family connections. And she started writing women's history, interestingly. She wrote, and I've always been a huge Cokie fan, but she, both in journalism and then as a woman, she started saying, nobody's paying attention to what the women have done. So she wrote several marvelous books uh, about Civil War women, women during the Revolution. She crusaded to get the National Park Service to put Mount Vernon as the home of George and Martha Washington. Martha had been left off. Okay. You're going to find with books like this that more people are going to be saying, now wait, didn't women have something to do with this? And not only women, men as well. Um, I would like people to emerge from this book with an appreciation that our society needs the contributions of all kinds of people, and it needs to recognize and celebrate those contributions. And when we have written a book that includes all the chapters, everybody is better off. Well, I think that's a great note for us to end on. So the book is called The Women Who Built Omaha, A Bold and Remarkable History. Are there any other things you want to plug or any events you want to talk about before I let you go? Well, uh, I would like to say that when I was reading, when I was writing this book, I was thinking who would particularly enjoy it. And I would love to talk to community groups. I'm doing, I've been getting quite a few invitations from book clubs and service clubs and residences, you know, any any group that would enjoy a presentation. I would love to come out and talk to you. Um, you can get a hold of me at my email, which is just my name at creighton.edu. I kept my Creighton email. Uh, and I hope that the book is perceived as a celebration, because that's how I feel about it. Well, it is a great book, and thank you so much for being here today. Thank you very much. Riverside Chats is a production of KIOS 91.5 FM, Omaha Public Radio. The show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos. Our artwork is done by Ben Matugowitz. Remember, you can find the backlog of all of my conversations wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave us a review. As always, thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock. <laughs>